Vintage brand is the story of American sporting culture, combining our rich history, traditions, rituals, and pageantry. Weaving together more than a century of American sports memories and images, it defines what tradition really means. Come experience the history and rituals. Remember and honor the legends. Feel the passion and pageantry of the past. Welcome to the greatest collection of American sports history and images, all reproduced on fan apparel and merchandise. Welcome to Vintage Brand. Resolved to the fact that the journey back to the Steelers would be arduous, Rocky pursued his NFL dream with an unrelenting dedication. The recovery uh, was, was just beginning. And when you put the perspective on the recovery, you had doctors tell you pretty much right away that, uh, you know, well, hey, you know, the, the hard part's over. We saved your legs. But right. as, right. as far as football, uh, they pretty much told you that, 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 that the dream was over as far as being able to ever, certainly to be able to play in the NFL again. Well, it, that, that was, you know, that was the, 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 the prognosis of, uh, of the doctor. And you just kind of put this in perspective, you know, which is that we've all been in, and I don't care what it might be, at some time, anybody who's ever had an accident or, or surgery or on a recovery um, uh, of one nature or, you know, is that in your mind, you know, you go, why me? Now what? <laughs> you know, it, it, what did it, why, what did I do to deserve this, et cetera? And you start feeling sorry for yourself, whatever that dream might be. When I was first out of the field, you know, you have some positive Im impact or people that make or put things in the right sense for you. When I was out of the field at the field hospital, I was there for a couple of days before I had a fly to, uh, to Tokyo. And so, uh, IV drips and morphine drip and you know and you're sitting there and uh, feeling sorry for yourself and across from me and I and I it, it, across from me was a, a young soldier uh, was a triple amputee and he lost oh. his and he lost his left arm oh, and both legs mm. and every day that I was there in the ward and as I said I was only there for a couple of days he would grab that trapeze that little swing over his bed and, and as the aides would come to take him to therapy and he'd swing his torso into the wheelchair and I'd be watching this and they'd push him out and he made sure that he stopped at every bed. I mean, in, in the ward, it wasn't a big ward. He'd stop, but he'd come, he'd stop at my bed and he'd go, hey, how you doing? He said, you look better today than you did yesterday because when you got here yesterday, let me tell you in all honesty, you look like shit. <laughs> Listen, we got some good docs, I'll take care of you, we'll get you out of here. I'll see you back in the real world one of these days. And I thought, wow. I mean, if anybody could be embittered with their life, yeah. like, let's be honest, uh, would be that young soldier having to live with those atrocities that took place thousands of miles away. But yet, yet he had a positive attitude. And I thought to myself, really, I mean, you know, I mean, if he had an attitude like that, what about me? I'm going to walk someday. I mean, I got my limbs, you know, damaged as it may be, but I got my so then I went to, so then, as I said, I went to Tokyo and after a couple of weeks, I got enough courage and that was it to ask my physician what he thought the, the, the damage did. Can I come back to play this game? That's all I wanted to know. Can I come back to play this game? Um, 
And his response was something like this, <laughs> quick chuckle. And he goes, oh, don't worry about it. Um, you're going to have a normal life. You're going to be able to do the things that normal people just don't expect to get back on that gridiron. You uh. just won't have the strength nor the flexibility to do the things that are necessary to be a running back in the NFL. Hmm. What he had formulated from his point of view, his stream of information, correct or not, in his diagnosis was a perception about my ability. But, but here's the important thing. As my authority figure, and we are somebody's authority figure along the way, but as my authority figure, he just sucked that hope right out. Yeah. So two days later, as the story goes, I get a postcard in the mail, a simple postcard. It's got two lines on it. It says this, Rock, team's not doing well. We need you. Art Rooney. Wow. Somebody needed me. Well, they didn't need me. But being the family that they were, you know, somebody reached out uh, and cared uh, about what you're doing. And I think that's, you know, in essence, that's all that we are looking for. So as an athlete, you know, not even as an athlete, as a human being, you know, we've been, we've had our, our sense of injuries, muscle pulls, operations, whatever they might be. And you kind of, you know, say, okay, fine. You get hurt Ooh, and it hurts. Oh, then you see the doctor and they fix it. Then you go through rehab and then you're back out playing again, whether it be in the neighborhood, <laughs> whether it be a scraped yep. knee, you know, or a stove finger or a broken finger or something of that nature, you know, it doesn't stop us. We just got to put through it in my mind. That was what I was looking at, okay? I didn't lose a leg, I didn't lose an arm. Yeah. I've been hurt before, I've had operations before. Um, and so in time, this will heal and it's what you do with it that, that counts. And having an opportunity becomes very important. So when I get out of the surface, um, the, the uh, Steelers, invite me back to camp and yep. I go and I go back to camp that year um, in 1970 um, and maybe it was too soon but I had to go back and uh, it took its toll through through basic training um, and uh, you know I started to, to limp and pain was there et cetera, et cetera. but um, being the family that they were they eventually put me on injured reserve and I had another operation, okay, uh, which they bought me a year. The following year, I came back a little bit healthier, bigger, stronger, um, and made the developmental squad. Hmm. Um, and they, they bought me two years, but they bought me two years of an opportunity to heal, to get stronger, and then you have to be able to do something with that. And so I come back in 72, a little bit bigger, a little bit stronger. And as I tell people, I said, I'm the leading ground gainer. Preseason. Yep. <laughs> yep. Exhibition season. Right. So you got your chance. to make the team. Right. <laughs> so yep. special teams. And so 73 is the same thing. I come back again. And I never carried the football as a running back. And then in 72, Franco has the immaculate reception. And we go to the playoffs and things are good. In 73, I come back and leading ground gainer again during the exhibition season. Made the team, got to carry the ball once during that season. But like all of us, you know, you start to question, yeah, where's the future? 
you know, what's going to happen? You know, I've been hanging around for a while and it may not sound like much now, but when you live through it, you know, it's like five years since I've now was a rookie. And even though I've been in the military and then coming back, trying to make the team, but it's still, oh, you know, maybe I thought maybe my life's going in another direction. I mean, they gave me credit for being in the service. And so I had five years of, um, duty or a playing time towards my retirement. And I, and I thought maybe my life's going in another direction. I mean, I come back, I make the team. Okay. My goals were, were met. Um, maybe not to the level I thought, but as I always tell people, that was not the deal we made in the rice paddy. And so right. yeah. I left the team. So I left the team to try to find my life's work. I was in Chicago hmm. um, selling life insurance. When I got a call from a teammate of mine, Andy, Andy Russell. Yep. Andy Russell. And <laughs> Andy, Andy Russell. The, yeah. So for those, Andy was captain of the football team. He was an all pro linebacker. Um, and uh, it was a, uh, it was a, a great guy. Andy also was a 16th round draft choice. Uh, <laughs> came into the league in uh, 1963. Uh, uh, also was in the military, spent two years in Germany uh, and then came back uh, to the, uh, the team in, uh, in 66 um, and made it. And so, um, uh, but anyway, so he's coming to Chicago as a big sports dinner taking place um, and sponsored by the NFL. And so he said, why don't you join us for dinner? And I said, no, I can't. I, you know, in my mind, I'm not coming back. And, and uh, I declined, he pushed, I declined some more and then asked me why. And I just said, well, I quit. I'm not coming back. Hmm. My second piece of it, was by him. He said, you can't quit. If you quit, what you have already done is that you've already made a decision for that coaching staff. Mm. Do you like them well enough to make decisions for them? No. <laughs> Your right. responsibility, if this is what you want to do, is that you come back and you make them make a decision. You give them all the reasons to either keep you or release you, but you don't cut yourself. The reality of this game is that we're all expendable. The reality of this game is we all can be cut at any time. If this is what you want to do, then you got to come back. And maybe it was just the arm twisting I needed, and I went back. And obviously, everything that I had perceived did take place. And I had a fight with every free agent, draft choice, and rookie once again, right? To make the team. So, you know, in my in 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 in, in this in this whole process, in the back of my mind was that. Um, I, at least I didn't ever want to get to a place that if it didn't work out and if it didn't turn out the way you wanted to, is that um, I didn't want to say, well, what if, what if exactly. you would have worked out? What if you would have spent more time? What if you, would, you know, done yep. this? So there are things that I can't control. And of course, that's ownership and or coaching staff and or their decisions, but I can control. Um, becoming stronger or better or better shape or whatever it is, or my own mindset of how to be able to, uh, you know, make this team. So that uh, became important. And, uh, and I was a leading ground gainer again in 1974, just, and I, and I, and I tell you this, and, 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 and what I'm trying to put in perspective here for the listeners is that the reason, the reason I was a leading ground gainer during those three, three seasons wasn't because of the fact that I was bigger, better, faster, 
than all the other running backs. No, I think they were trying to get rid of me. So I just played more than anybody else. I carried the ball more than anybody else. Given those two simple statistics, I better be the leading ground gainer. All right. All they were providing for me was an opportunity to make the team. So they had to keep me. And I was the fifth running back out of four at the beginning of that season, back playing special teams. When Franco Harris gets hurt, the backup becomes the starter. I become the backup to the backup. Wow, I've never been there before. So with renewed vigor, I play that first game, second game, third game, fourth game. Right before the half of the fourth game, the backup gets hurt and I'm inserted game at, at fullback. And my running mate, Preston Pearson. Preston Pearson, yeah. Finished yep. his career with the Dallas Cowboys, remember? Yep. Um, Duke. He breaks one 43 yards and scores and gives us a lead. And we go in at halftime, go over assignments, adjustments. And uh, I'm thinking to myself, who's going to start the second half? Maybe those guys have got you to lead the first half. And so Preston and I get to start the second half and as a team. <laughs> so here's the function. As a team, we win the game. Following week, everybody's still banged up. So Preston and I get to start and as a team, win that game. And the week thereafter, it's a Monday night game, an extra day of healing, Franco. Now Franco now becomes healthy. Damn, I said to myself. Well, <laughs> Here he At least comes. I got a chance to play. At least I got a chance to play, prove, show what he could do. We had a pregame meal. Um, we'll go over assignments, adjustments, and coach looks around and said, Franco, you and Rock will start tonight. And momentarily, I was quite confused. I, wow. I, I didn't know how we both could play the same position at the same time. <laughs> right. When it yeah. I was going to play the fullback position, play the other running back position. Um, nobody told me that. I wish it. And ultimately, we start and play that remaining part of the season and we win the, 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 the division. We go to the playoffs, we go to the Super Bowl for the first time. We play six more years and we go to four more Super Bowls. And in 1976, Franco and I become the second set of running backs in the history of the NFL, each to gain a thousand, thousand yards, yards rushing in one season. But the reason I got a chance to play yep. or start that game wasn't because of my size or speed. Two things I do not possess, but <laughs> right. because of one talent. And this becomes important to your listeners hmm. uh, and to those who have aspirations, because we all have a talent, one nature or another. And it's really up to us to be able to define what that talent is that we bring to our lives, to our community, to our work uh, uh, spot, to, to school, whatever, whatever that might be. Um, because uh, prior to that breakout group, uh, Chuck Knoll had stopped our backfield coach and said, listen, you have a weakness in your backfield. Who is your best blocker? Right. He said, Blyer. Yep. He said, then start him. Hmm. One talent. Yep. And so that fine line of one, if you think about it, that connects our life, comes full circle, at least for me. And I get a chance to, you know, uh, be on that team for all those years and to be able to uh, wear those four Super Bowl rings, not because of me, but because of the people that I played with and the opportunity that existed before us. Yep. And Franco in that, that first Super Bowl, you talk about your blocking ability. He sets a Super Bowl rushing record. And uh, once again, I'm talking to Paul Revere's horse here. <laughs> right. You had a little bit to do with it. 
He he did. We had a we had a great rushing uh, a game. Um, yeah, Franco sets a sets a sets a Super Bowl record at that time. Yep. Um, at the time. Yep. And I came in. I came in second. Actually, actually, actually. It, <laughs> you had that dive twenty two play though that was pretty slick. Well, we had it was called a, a dive thirty four sucker. Oh, dive thirty four. I'm sorry, sucker. sucker. No, that was that's a right. Sucker. Little trap on the inside. Oh, yeah, it was. It wasn't even a trap. We were just faking everybody one way because we trapped, and it was this big hole that was left on the on the right hand side. Yep. So I would take a counter step, come back. Everybody Ooh. would go to the left. I come back to the right. Oh yeah. Uh, <laughs> the first time we 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 ran it. It was the second play of the game, but the third play of the game. And we ran it, and, and I and I and I picked up, I picked up eighteen yards. I yeah, picked up eighteen yards. It was yeah. Franco would have scored, but but I got eighteen yards, which was fine for me. <laughs> so <laughs> we ran it. We ran it. We ran it about five times during the um, during the during the game. Now here, I, I'll give you a little insight. So yeah. that was a pretty. It, it wasn't a close game. We had a lead um, nine to. I think it was nine to two at the time. Um, and so we had the ball down on our 23 yard line or so. And it was maybe it was a, and it was a third and it was a third and six situation. And we had to pick mm -hmm. up first down. Um, and Bradshaw comes into the huddle as Bradshaw comes into the huddle and he goes, um, okay, guys, what do you want to run? Hmm. In unison. I don't even think anybody took a breath. In unison, they go, sucker. And I'm huh. thinking to myself, sucker, yeah, because you don't block anybody on sucker. You guys don't do anything. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, they, we can, how many times do you think we can run this? You know, it's like, yeah. you're going to sucker this. This is the sixth time. Oh, so we run it and uh, they respond to it. Fortunately, fortunately, I pick up the first down. I get six yards just huh. the first huh. down, which leads to a touchdown. Uh, to Larry Brown or tight end to give us 17 points in that game. But, uh, anyway, so that was my contribution to uh, yeah. Super Bowl. Yeah. But Frank Bull gains 140. Yes, yeah, sets the record. Once again, the glory. And uh, you can only fool your uh, ex-teammate Alan Page so many times. That's so, right. Uh, yeah, so that's, many you can only sucker him so many times, as it, <laughs> as it, as it turned out. And uh, you mentioned about the the, uh, the second time in NFL history, Zonker and Morris in 72, the 2,000-yard runners. And I'll venture to say that you're the only 1,000-yard rusher in the history of the NFL, Rocky, with two different shoe sizes. Well, that's right. And, uh, and, and as my teammates would say, that uh, never made a move. That, <laughs> never made a move. Straight ahead. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, yeah, yep. And uh, I got to ask you about one game, your, 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 your signature game in terms of uh, rushing. You, you towed it 35 times for 163 yards. It was against Green Bay. The only problem with the storybook there is if we made the movie about that game, we'd have to move the game to Lambeau instead of County Stadium. But that's right. Yeah, other no. than that, you played against the team, but I'm sure you grew up worshiping with those packet tapes. Of course it was. So, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we get a chance to play. You get a chance to play the Packers, played against them. We didn't play them that often, played against them once no. before in an exhibition game. Um, but this was down in Milwaukee when they split the, the season uh, between the two uh, stadiums. And so we were coming home. I didn't know I had that many relatives back in Wisconsin <laughs> until we came into town. <laughs> they all come out of the woodwork. They all come out of the woodwork. But it was, um, it was, uh, 
So it was a game. I mean, so it was a game, as you were saying, uh, everything that I carried, everything that I worked, every, I mean, everything, every play worked. I mean, for me to be able to gain 163 yards uh, in, in that game was fine. Mike McCoy, remember that name? Yes, Notre Dame McCoy. defensive tackle. Was playing for the Green Bay Packers at the time. And he was a defensive tackle in that game. And so I see him in the off season. I see him in the off season after that game. The first thing he says to me, he said, where did you come from? I go, what do you mean? He said, no, where did you come from? He said, we, we had our defensive scheme plan, you know, everything against you. So you were, you know, you weren't even mentioned. You weren't even, you weren't, part of our defensive game plan at all. So, so where did you come from? And, and I'm thinking, well, it was all Franco, it was all Franco and all Franco. And then uh, it, uh, and so it was like, now I understand why I gained 163 yards because I wasn't even on the radar. The, you know, I, I did run one play and I was looking at the linebacker and he looks confused. He said he'd never, he had never seen this play before. <laughs> Well, well, for the record, Franco. Yeah. I'm going to take it because I was such a great running back. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's absolutely. Yeah, it looks look looks better in the rearview mirror as you look back. <laughs> That's and, right. Yeah, Franco only had 16 yards in that game, and and Bradshaw only threw for 84. So thank God they had you. <laughs> That's right. It was a, a, a tough tough day for uh, the uh, the big guns there, and. Uh, well, you know, everybody, every kid dreams about being on the cover of Sports Illustrated. And you, you, you did that more than once. But the, 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 the touchdown pass that put the Steelers ahead in Super Bowl 13, it, it, was, uh, it was a little bit of improvisation or it was kind of modified from that was originally supposed to look like. But uh, well, that's your, true. yeah, your vertical leap at 5'9 was pretty good. That was excellent. So the play was third down. Uh, and one, third and one on the six-yard line. And so it was a play-action play. And uh, basically, I was to go down the line of scrimmage. Bradshaw would fake to Franco into the line, pull it up, hit me very quickly, catch it over my shoulder, turn up field, pick up the first down, first pick up a yard, two yards, whatever I could get. Uh, that was the play. So when the ball was snapped, I broke out of my stance. But... Uh, D.D. Lewis, who was their outside linebacker, jumped across the line of scrimmage to stop the run play. Well, he took my path away from me, so the best I could do was to kind of sneak inside of him uh, and go upfield. In in the meantime, he faked a Franco. D.D. had to spin around because he had me in man-to-man coverage when he found out it was going to be a pass play. Bradshaw is rolling to his right. Um, Sideline was looming up. As I like to tell people, larger than life, uh, Neanderthal beings chasing him down from the opposite <laughs> side. And then uh, all of a sudden, all time stood still and our eyes met across the field, 30 yards se- separating us. Yeah. And released the ball, maybe a little too quickly, maybe a little too high. And it came floating into that end zone. And as it came floating into that end zone, I leaped, as you had said, all five foot nine and a half inches of me, all my might straight up in the air. I don't know, 18, 
19, 20 feet. I kind of forget after all these years. Threw my hands up. <laughs> 20 feet. <laughs> boom, it stuck. And I was as surprised as anybody. And we came out for that touchdown and uh, gave us a lead. And as I say, a lead we never relinquished. That's right. <laughs> so, the, the, that the, was... the, 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 winning, the winning points in that, in that Super Bowl, the fourth Super Bowl. <laughs> but the interesting yeah. thing there, the, the, yeah. Bernie, Bernie, the interesting thing is this. I had a chance not to look at the, uh, not to look at the, 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 the game, but I, went, I was looking at the statistics of the game of the mm. game and so yeah. you like to you know you forget what you do or you like to you know kind of say you know how many, how many times i carry the ball what did i do and so on but <clears throat> i looked at the statistics and i'm going oh i didn't do anything i carried the ball twice <laughs> for one yard <laughs> i caught one pass one pass one pass and uh, and recovered one onside kick that, at the end of the game. Stats for the, <laughs> the, the <laughs> that was my stats. But as I tell people, it got me on the cover of sports. Right? <laughs> <That's> right. Absolutely, <laughs> no jinx there. That's no for sure. <laughs> no, 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 no doubt. You 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 retired in 1980, and uh, a decade, uh, just a re remarkable NFL career, and uh, very emotional with your family. You talk about your family coming out of the woodwork and. Milwaukee, but your family uh, surrounding you, your relationship with the, the, the city of Pittsburgh, it's almost a perfect symmetry with, you know, the guy's got glasses, he's, he's losing his hair, smokes, swears, maybe has a beer. I mean, you were the perfect guy for Pittsburgh. As we say at the track, Brock, there's horses for courses. You were the perfect guy. Perfect. Well, you know, it, it was kind of like I grew up in that perfect atmosphere back in Appleton. I mean, it, it was yeah. just the same kind of people, you know, they're blue collared, hardworking mill people. Uh, they love their bars <laughs> and they love their sports teams, no matter how badly they may be doing um, and or as, as well as they're doing. And so you, you, you know, you settled here and, uh, and I made this home. And so that was great. I had the chance to um continue and did some broadcasting uh, for the local NBC station here for several years afterwards and helped me make the transition back into uh, you know quote civilian world and uh, but but the the fan base no matter what the fan base you know loved their 70s and loved their Steelers and so you were part of that and uh, and because of it um you know right or wrong they they, they, they embraced you and made you uh, feel much a part of their community as, uh, as if you were born and raised here in Pittsburgh. And your relationship with, uh, with, with, with Chuck Knoll, you got that postcard. Aunt Rooney wasn't kidding. They were one in 13 when he sent you that <laughs> postcard. They were having a bad year. That's right. They were. Yeah. But your relationship with Chuck Knoll, obviously one of the iconic figures of the NFL. You know, I, I, so the relationship with Chuck, I don't think was any different than other relationships, you know, that Chuck had with his players. Chuck was a, um, um, maybe the right, for me, he was the right coach at the right time. He was, he was, um, was very, um, how can I say this? He, he, he was tempered, he was very even tempered. Uh, he was not a yeller or a screamer. Uh, he was a rationalized person. Uh, he had a thought 
process about how things are achieved and 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 how they should be done. Um, and he expected professionalism from his players. Um, and um, and so for me, that 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 fit in. You didn't have. I should say this. We 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 all talked about. You know, how do you define Chuck Noll? You know, how do you define him? And so um, you, you were talking. So I, I asked Terry Hanrahan this question yeah. once. Okay, and sure. uh, Terry and I, um, for those listeners out there, as it may mentioned, we played at Notre Dame, but we also played together with Pittsburgh. Yeah, and you um, couldn't get rid of him. No, I couldn't get rid of him. So he was there for six years um, in Pittsburgh um, as a, as he and Bradshaw were one and two quarterbacks, and he was a backup uh, before he went to Tampa. But anyway, he said uh, that was, you know, Chuck uh, was that kind of a guy, meaning that he would, um, he was not a yellow screen, he was just an even-tempered guy, but he just always made you feel a little bit uneasy. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep. So there was just, he, there was, he, he, he wasn't a, a rah-rah guy. He wasn't embracing. He wasn't a, a ball player's coach. You know, he was the coach. Um, and he had uh, a great respect, um, but he also had a job to do. I mean, he also had decisions to be made, so he couldn't be the buddy-buddy kind of guy, you know. Uh, uh, but he respected and um, ultimately, um, loved all of his players and what happens and what happens and happened to the Steelers in the early part of the eighties, when you start making that transition. Um, and what happens is that you kind of hang on to players longer than maybe they need to be hung on to. Right. And so all of a sudden you have a weakness because you have no backups or you don't have any young people coming in, uh, and they're not necessarily doing the job, but how do you, how do you, how do you get rid of them? <laughs> you right. You know, and so Chuck had that whole um, um, sensitivity about him and his players. And, and um, so I respect Chuck um, for his knowledge, for his ability to um, get it across to the players and, and get a, exactly what he wanted to get accomplished. And he did. And, and to and a different guy than than Ara, you played oh, for another yeah. legend. Yeah, right, much right. different. Yeah, much different. And Ara, you know, and, but they they were both. I should say this, you know, and every coach that I had was, you know, uh, very. Um, they they knew the game. They understood the game. Um, they had their own mindset and how the game should be won and how you handle, you know, people. Ara. You know, so eras, you know, you've got a, you've got a group of 18 to 22 year old kids, you know, right. and, and trying to get the most out of them. And they're changing every, you know, every two years or, you know, you're getting a new batch coming in. And so you've got to, you know, grow or, or make it sound like professional where you got, you know, a team that you can keep for a period of time. But in college, it's, you got to motivate each and every one of those kids and Aaron was very good at doing that, and he was very good at his position, and he was very good uh, at uh, designating an authority amongst his uh, assistant coaches and allowing them to uh, have an interaction uh, and a voice in in how an offense or a defense should run. So, um, yeah, so Aaron was the, the, the that that kind of a that kind of a guy, um, and so. Uh, 
as as Chuck was a little different, but on a professional level, uh, had to handle the guys differently. You mentioned about uh, your work in, in the media. You've been uh, an author, as we're going to talk about here. Uh, as, uh, as we wrap up, uh, you've been an actor, you've been a motivational speaker, uh, and also uh, a number of charitable causes uh, I know that you've been involved with, uh, particularly uh, you work, not surprisingly, with veterans and, uh, and uh, with the Vietnam veterans, but also uh, with veterans in the military in particular. I know with the reissue of your book, uh, Fighting Back, and also the Beating the Odds Foundation. <laughs> That's right, thank you. <laughs> So, you know, I think part of it, you know, part of it is that there's a certain responsibility um, that a player has to give back to his community. Um, and for so long, you're in, 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 in quote, the public eye. Um, and hopefully there's something you can do with that recognition to help uh, communities or, or, or become involved. And so over the years, uh, I, you know, I have become involved in, 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 in that regard. So Beating the Odds Foundation was one of the earliest ones. It was 30 years that uh, Rocco Skelzi um, uh, started and I worked together in, in Beating the Odds Foundation. Beating the Odds is basically as, is, is helping students, helping students to define um, outside of the curriculum in the schools to define what they want to do, the stepping stones of success. Uh, to be able to get them through programs, um, et cetera, et cetera. And it's something that um, the school district has to buy into, and it's a third-party relationship, um, because we don't necessarily get that in our school systems today yeah. on how to be successful, uh, how to expand, what do you want to do? Uh, and we give them those opportunities um, and call the quarterbacks of life as well. So we've worked, uh, for instance, with NASA for the last eight years, uh, a student initiatives, working with NASA on a project. And they have to do their research um, a, 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 along with NASA. And then eventually they get a chance to go down to uh, NASA and to present their papers um, to, uh, um, to the astronauts um, that, uh, that are working there. So it's it's kind of that interaction. So uh, they've done um, they've, so. Beating the Odds Foundation is a, uh, yeah, it's a wonderful. We've worked with school districts around the country, um, incorporating um, our stepping stones of success and the programs that, uh, that that come with it. So that helps those students become a little bit better, you know. And uh, and then from a military point of view, and the biggest thing in a military yeah. point of view <clears throat> is I work with a with a, a foundation called uh, Warriors to Citizens, and it's a transitional. And one of the biggest things are, 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 are military people making transitions back into civilian life and the support mechanism that they need to be able to do so. Um, in all transitions, no matter what we do, uh, when we're <laughs> as we go through life, we make transitions from high school to college, college to the workforce, uh, you know, how do I, how do I do it from job to job? Um, and the military people specifically have, you know, have some issues. So part of, you know, part of the statistic, you know, you, you talk about our, our, our deployment uh, issues today. And uh, because of, because of that, divorce rates have been up. Um, yep. You have isolation, you have mental health 
problems um, because of, well, Vietnam veterans were Agent Orange. Uh, and, and so from a combat uh, syndrome uh, of, of coming back and then having multiple uh, deployments does take a toll. And so we're, and, and so you get this whole psychological built up of a, of a uh, of military people that they can't go anyplace because they don't want their superiors to know that they might be thinking about a weakness in their, you know, system, you mm -hmm. know, that macho, uh, you know, feeling, well, it doesn't happen to me, but it does. So where do you go? How do I deal with it? How do I take care of my family uh, without having to uh, uh, report it to my superiors? And so these are programs that have been established um, within the different branches uh, that become very important and, um, and, and just become an awareness factor that uh, there's solutions out there. So in throughout the year, there's, you know, there's a lot of charities out there that support our military and do some wonderful work within their communities. Um, and so uh, I just, you know, tell people that, um, to, to, to be aware of what they might be and, and how they can help them uh, no matter where they live, uh, because there's somebody that needs a hand up um, and, uh, and, and a support mechanism. And so um, your money's work wonders in that, in, in that regards. So you, you just give back, you know, that's it, as best you possibly can. Absolutely. And the book uh, that you reissued, uh, Fighting Back, uh, is it also involved with a fundraising campaign? If nobody uh, out there has not had the opportunity, if anybody out there hasn't had the opportunity, you should check it out. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, so funny. Yeah, so we re we reissued and redid uh, the book Fighting Back, which I originally did uh, back in 1974 um, when we came with first Super Bowl, and then it came yeah. out in '75. Um, and uh, so then we we did a whole reissue of it, uh, added new chapters um, and uh, some pictures. But anyway, it's, uh, uh, and so the. The, the, the proceeds um, go to uh, military organizations uh, here uh, in Pittsburgh specifically um, uh, to uh, Veterans Leadership Program, uh, which is a, a local um, a group that's been around, started by Vietnam veterans uh, some 30 years ago, hands-on. They do wonderful work in our community specifically. So uh, the money goes to, uh, to, to them. Great. And uh, also, if uh, if people haven't checked out the return on E60, uh, it's 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 moving. It's inspirational. As you look back to your return to uh, the hip hip duck valley from yeah. two years ago, Rocky, the experience, was it worth it to go back for the catharsis of that moment? Because it was a difficult moment for you on many levels. Well, yeah, and and, uh, and no one knew. I didn't know that that moment was going to happen, or what was to ex what uh, what I was what I was going to expect, or what did ESPN? And I was when ESPN approached me to be able to say, "Hey, let's go back and 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 do this," and so it would have been their fiftieth anniversary. And I go, okay, fine. You know, so we worked out our schedules so that we were able to uh, tie everybody up um, at the time. And so I said, but, you know, I said, unlike the majority of Vietnam veterans specifically, who, when they came back from their uh, uh, duty of uh, fighting over in Vietnam, 
had to repress their feelings. I mean, right. our society did not accept them. Uh, they tied the military into the conflict. And so the military soldier uh, was spat upon, looked down upon uh, as baby killers and so on and so on. It was, it was, it was you were told to change into civilian clothes uh, just to make it easier on yourself and so on and so on. So that whole, that whole group of people come back and they repress their feelings. They go about their lives, go back to school, um, get a job, get married, raise kids, but they have nothing to, they, they weren't able to share their feelings. I come back and I become a story because I come back to a high profile industry trying to make the team of football, whether I made it or not, it becomes the story of uh, this kid trying to overcome these obstacles to be able to do that. So because of it, I had to answer questions. How did you feel? What was it like, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and so somewhat of it was a, a catharsis for me uh, to have to have to do that. At least I got a chance to talk about it and, and had a platform. And also, because you were coming back and you did make the team and you then were perceived as a courageous young man. So it was kind of a positive um, feedback that you got. Um, and so I said, no, nah, I've been telling that story for 40 years. <laughs> said, so I don't know what to expect when we go back to Vietnam. Yeah. So they did all their homework and went back to the exact spot, you know, where um, uh, it, it, it was to take place where the firefight was and where I got hit in the open race paddies and so on. And so, uh, you know, after 50 years, was this the place or not? It was kind of like the area. As much as I can remember it, it kind of fits the uh, geographical area and what I saw there. And I thought, yeah, okay, fine. This is where we came out of the woods. You know, it's changed and there's a little overgrown you know, in, in, in those rice paddies, uh, it, and it's different because it was a life-changing experience within a matter of seconds. Sec yeah. It's not as if you'd been there forever and understood. So I said, okay, fine. And um, then, and so we started talking about it uh, with Tom Rinaldi, uh, who is the host. And uh, then he asked me the one question. He just asked me the one question, which was, how do you feel? And Bernie, I tell you what, out of the blue, I mean, just out of the blue, I don't know where this emotion came from. It came from the bottom of my soles of my feet up through my body. I could feel it. I mean, I could just feel it overcoming my, 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 my sense of being. And, and all of a sudden, I, I start to cry. And it's just emotional um, about that. And I'm, you know, Part of me is thinking, what's going on here? Uh, and, you know, and the other part was saying, why are you doing this? Uh, and I just couldn't get it. Finally, finally, I, you know, I was able to get to a position where I could control myself. But ooh, I have to tell you, I really felt sick. I mean, just sick, yeah. sick like my inside. Oh, and I told uh, Rinaldi, I said, Tom, I said, I got to. I got to sit down. And so, um, and he said, okay, fine. Well, let's sit down over here. And I sit down and my blood pressure just drops like this and I pass out. And I come to, 
And so I got now five adult men looking at me with these wide eyes like, whoa, what happened here? And, um, uh, and so then we, uh, we had to go back. We had to go back uh, and get an IV and, and, and get the doctor check me out and so on. But the whole process afterwards, and I got to thinking of what took place, what took place and why was maybe an insight, just a little insight of what some of our military personnel have to go through when we talk about post-traumatic stress. Right. Uh, yep. that, it, that it has, uh, as I understand, you know, is that one day it's like this, is like uh, one day you can open the door, walk out of your apartment and just fall off a cliff, you know, uh, like geez. this. And that was kind of the experience I had to some degree. And I thought, wow, um, if, if people have to live with this uh, all the time. Uh, yeah, perspective. I, I can understand, you know, um, I can understand sometimes the suicide rates. I, I can understand the problems that uh, some of our returning soldiers, you know, have done. So yeah. that's, you know, that's what took place. Now, when they added the whole thing, now I have to tell you this. So we have, okay. so yep. they, they do the whole thing. They get the 30 minutes when we get the return. Okay, so we get the return. And um, so I'm listening to it. So we watch it, you know, so yeah, okay, fine. So I'm watching it. And then they go, uh, because of heat stroke, it takes a toll on his body. And I'm thinking to myself, heat stroke. That's right. They reference that. They reference heat stroke. Yeah. Heat stroke. It sounds like I'm some 80-year-old guy that couldn't stand it. it was a heat stroke thing. It wasn't. <laughs> it was a no. okay. So at least it was an emotional, oh, you know, an emotional mo movement at the time. I said heat stroke. Sounds like women. You know, he couldn't sit. And it was my laugh uh, out of the, the whole oh. thing. <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah, because you know, they did reference that. I'm glad you pointed yes, that did. out. That's sad. Uh, <laughs> right. we, we, we get the rest of the story, Paul Harvey. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. We get it live. Exactly. Well, uh, you, you said back in the 80s uh, at Sports Illustrated on the concept of heroism. Mostly illusion, you're scared, you react, nothing out of the ordinary. I want to believe in the illusion. I like the concept of heroes. I think we need the inspiration. And if I can be a symbol of something good for some people, even if I'm not exactly what they think I am, well, that's okay. Embrace the opportunity. Do you still feel that way today, some 30 plus years later? I, yes, I do. You know, I mean, because, um, you know, really, I mean, probably, and I maybe redefine my, 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 my definition of a hero in, in, in a very simple way. It's, uh, you know, somebody who does what needs to be done when it has to be done yeah. without thinking about the consequences. Right. Or the how or why. It's that moment of reaction, you know, then all of a sudden we need to put a label on him because he did whatever was his. Now, okay, so we've got to be a hero. But it's right. really that moment and anybody can 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 do it, you know, at, at, at the time. You just do what needs to be done, you know, without thinking about it and so on. Um, and, um, and so it's nothing necessarily 
special except for the fact that um, whatever was accomplished, you know, was 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 accomplished at that at, at, at that time in, in the end result. But yeah, I I feel the same. Destiny's no matter of chance. It's a matter of choice. It's not a right. thing to be waited for. It's a thing to be achieved. William Jennings Bryan. <laughs> That's remember right. that quote. Yeah, yes. I remember that quote. Yes, and that is, and that is true. Yep. Uh, yep. And uh, we leave the final word to Terry Bradshaw. Who else? But a more eloquent statesman. How can you not admire Rocky Blyer? He had a dream, and he wasn't going to quit on it. And those are the guys you want to play with. <laughs> that, was, that was a great quote, and uh, and I yep. and I still have to thank him every time I see him for that. <laughs> probably the checks probably in the mail. That's right. in the mail. That's <laughs> it for, that, for that. But uh, yeah. yeah. Yep. And I'm sure that Fuzzy Thurston's left guard bar couldn't hold an old style to Blyas. That's my final word. <laughs> Fuzzy Thurston, what a great what a great place that was. Uh, yep. The left guard was the name of his the bar. Left that guard, was that's it. Yep. You know, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, Rocky, this has been uh, this has been quite a journey when you consider from Appleton to South Bend uh, to uh, to the Heap Dock Valley to Pittsburgh and and uh, it's, it's been one of the most amazing American journeys, remarkable. Uh, I'm gonna start with, usually you start with the on-field, but uh, Purple Heart, Bronze Star, Distinguished American, and oh, by the way, four-time Super Bowl. Oh, that's right. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's been an honor and a privilege as I, as I certainly thought it would be here today. Thank you, Bernie. Thank you. It was a, I enjoyed it. Thank you, I enjoyed it. Anytime. Thank, thank you very much. What can you say, Robert Patrick, Rocky Blair, and uh, played the game well with us here on the games people play today. I uh, want to uh, thank Andy Bernstein, our executive producer, uh, the crew here with Amy and George at our studio location. And of course, uh, Vintage Brand to uh, invite you to vintagebrand.com to relive, relive the game, retro sports designs to remember, inspire, and share authentic sports moments. And you can check out our games people play page at vintagebrand.com. So for my guest, Rocky Blyer, uh, this is Bernie Corbett saying, play the game well, everyone. Vintage Brand is the story of American sporting culture, combining our rich history, traditions, rituals, and pageantry. Weaving together more than a century of American sports memories and images, it defines what tradition really means. Come experience the history and rituals. Remember and honor the legends. Feel the passion and pageantry of the past. Welcome to the greatest collection of American sports history and images, all reproduced on fan apparel and merchandise. Welcome to Vintage Brand.